This is Untold, the Connecticut Mayor's news and culture podcast, and we have three simple charges. Challenge assumptions, seek understanding, and leave nothing untold. I'm Mercy Quay. And I'm John Dankosky. We've called this season self-evident, maybe ironically, because we're talking about the big issues where it often seems like there's really very little we can all agree on. We're talking about the climate crisis, reproductive rights, gun violence, gay and trans rights, and access to the ballot box. These are the things that are motivating young people to go and vote in the upcoming midterm election. A lot of what people felt was self-evident, or at least settled about health care, was upended this summer. The Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, which enshrined the right to an abortion. In response, Connecticut has promised to protect a woman's right to reproductive health care. But is that promise a reality for all women in the state? Being a brown woman, I feel like I don't have the same rights. I feel like I don't have the same value than white women. And did you know, despite its progressive image on reproductive rights, Connecticut does not actually require public schools to teach sex education. Later this episode, we'll talk to two teenagers who have taken on the hard work of educating their peers on the most intimate topics, and we'll find out what questions they get asked the most. There are simple things like, am I going to get pregnant if I do this? And should I wear two condoms? Is that better? But I guess the most surprising thing I've gotten, especially where I live, it's a relatively affluent, very white part of Connecticut, and I get a lot of pregnant girls. So, Mercy, how do you, how do we get into a conversation about this? I think what's hard about uh, knowing where to start is that I'm assuming you've never had an abortion and I've never had an abortion. And so we are two outsiders diving in um, with armed with nothing but our assumptions. Yeah, I, and that gets to the heart of something that I I will say in terms of my assumptions about this that might be a little bit controversial, which is for years I've kind of said whenever I hear a guy who won't ever have an abortion um, talking about abortion rights, I kind of want to say just shut up. Mm-hmm. And, and let and let people who might have to deal with that uh, let them figure this out. C- can I ask you first of all? Is that am I doing that the wrong way by saying like, d- dudes, just get out of the way and let other people talk about this? Or is that does that feel yeah. like the right thing to do? That's absolutely the right thing to do uh, through my lens, anyway. I think that the only time I want to hear men or folks who identify as men who are unable to get pregnant and therefore would never experience an abortion is you can be quiet, right? Like shut the hell up unless what you're saying is I don't get a voice in this conversation. And there's something valuable about a man making that assertion, right? I don't get a voice in this conversation is uh, a an example to other men of what you should be doing right um but i but you know some of the things that i have consistently thought about when it comes to this conversation about uh, uh, abortion rights and access is you know our state our state has 
done things john right like we've done a couple things i don't think we get to wear the crown of progressiveness right i don't think we get that i don't think we can claim that because you know we're closing labor units in hospitals people have to drive miles away in order to get the care that they deserve and i think in addition to that um up until recently we were freaking inundated with fake abortion clinics that was our state we didn't put legislation up against that until recently that was our state that had that yeah and, and i think that 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 question of not just access to abortion but access to a safe place to give birth uh, access to uh neonatal care access to OBGYN services um just healthcare access is something that no state in the union has done a particularly good job of. I, I think, you know, when we talk about this, we sort of broaden it out to reproductive rights and not just making it about abortion because there's just so much that, that goes under that heading. I mean, there's questions of uh, maternal mortality. We, we still have women in America die in childbirth. Shocking! Mm -hmm. Like how, how black does, women more than any black other women more than any other group. How does this even happen, right? And I think that th this is the reason why, as we have this roiling national conversation about abortion, you said it exactly right. Just like gotta back out and have a bigger conversation about what about just people who do decide to have a child. How yeah. good is that for them? In not all cases, is it all that good? I I often want to, like you said, move away from abortion access as a conversation to reproductive rights, but even further from reproductive rights and go to family planning, right? Because I think that we actually have an issue with family planning in this country all around. And, and Mercy, tying into all of this is something we're going to be hearing about later on in the episode is just how well we understand uh, sex, sexual reproduction, uh, relationships, all the things that are kind of tied up in in these decision-making processes that we've just been talking about, Connecticut is one of many states that doesn't say you have to have sex education in school. And I don't know, it, it feels like it's hard to have a population that's going to make all these life and death decisions that we're talking about without really like knowing the basic stuff that they need to know. We're sending people off into their lives without a basic understanding of consent of reproduction of reproductive organs <laughs> right and when we when we under equip young people with that kind of information what does it mean for the futures that we are investing in hi i'm elizabeth hamilton executive editor of the connecticut mirror our impact reporting is made possible because of the financial support of members like you. If you are a Connecticut Mirror member, thank you. You're helping to create and sustain in-depth news coverage here in the state. If you haven't yet supported the Connecticut Mirror, I encourage you to do so. Nonprofit, nonpartisan journalism like this is vital to our democracy. Go to ctmirror.org and click the red donate button. Thank you. You're listening to Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. I'm Mercy Quay. And I'm John Dankosky. Since Roe v. Wade was overturned this summer, 
Connecticut has worked to represent itself as a national leader on reproductive rights. Our producer, Harriet Jones, has been taking a look at how well that really works in practice for everyone in the state. For decades, the people who got to debate abortion rights in public told very simple stories. Here's one. Over time, people will come to realize that abortion is not good law, abortion is not good practice, that we ought to have a state where every unborn child is protected in law. Here's another. I can guarantee you it's going to stay the law of the state of Connecticut right here. That's something you can count upon. You can count upon it. With Susan and I, no questions about it, no rolling back, no little restrictions, no slippery slopes. We are going to protect that right, and I can't do it unless you're re-elected. But those of us who need, use, or lack reproductive health care over our lifetimes aren't really characters in a simple tale with clear choices. Lucia no tiene seguro. Ese era su delito. Lucia did not have insurance. That was her error. This is Laura Garcia. She's addressing a reproductive rights rally on New Haven Green. She's talking about a friend of hers whose baby died during her pregnancy. Laura says Lucia was denied care multiple times, with her child dead inside her for at least a week before she was finally helped. She could have died from an infection. Thank goodness that she did not. But this is ridiculous because the government continues to make rules over our bodies and does nothing to help protect us and keep our safety. For Lucia and Matias, victims of this system, all over my body, I take my decisions. Thank you. Speaking Thank you. up publicly like this on reproductive health care is pretty new for Laura. But she does it because she had a very similar experience. Two years ago, her son Matias died in the 39th week of her pregnancy. I have many symptoms. I, I told the doctors, I explained them, I complained. They never listened to me and my baby died. And I almost died. Laura had to push for four hours to try to deliver Matias before doctors realized her own life was at risk and she underwent an emergency C-section. I was two days in the ICU and this, the situation that happened to me, uh, show, show me like I need to speak up. Matias was her third pregnancy and Laura had known something wasn't right. Her nails turned purple, her feet were swollen and she was vomiting continuously. But doctors told her she was overreacting. They are not taking a good care of us in the, in the community clinics, in the hospitals, but they want to impart all these uh, laws for our, our bodies when they don't they don't give us a good care. Laura thinks the real reason she wasn't believed is she's undocumented and at the time had no insurance. <laughs> I don't have the exactly words how you feel being a brown woman, but I feel like I don't have the same rights. I feel like I don't have the same value than white women and that they don't care about us. Now she's become an advocate. She's working with providers at Yale to connect other undocumented women to educational workshops and proper care. One more time for the Connecticut Reproductive Justice Coalition. We've been really... Elise Coleman says for poor and marginalized women, controlling their fertility and family life isn't only dependent on reproductive care. The issues that we're facing, including climate change, housing insecurity, food insecurity, all the things that get in the way of a person being able to make the choice to have a child or not have a child with dignity, to raise a family without poverty. We are the ones who are pro-life. We are the ones who cherish life. We are the ones who are sick of seeing our siblings, our sisters, our family being killed and die 
Blanca Mise is an activist with Workers' Voice. She says Connecticut needn't look around the country and think it has somehow uniquely solved reproductive rights. I think that it's not just a struggle for the red states, it's also a struggle in the blue states, because those who don't have access uh, in the states where, in theory, you have abortion are always the same communities. We've been hearing all morning. It's a black community, the immigrant community, Latinx, indigenous, because for all of the factors that we've been hearing, there's very hurdles, the money is not there, you get in a waiting list or you need to pay this. Uh, they're excluded, de facto, of this right. They don't have it. It matters if something is legal or not. We should not be frivolous about it. But even where it's legal, we still have a lot of work to do to realize it. The literal gory details of reproductive care, the sort of messy compromises and difficult choices that most women will face in their lifetimes, didn't used to be the stories that were told in public. Since the Dobbs decision, that's no longer true. Many women that suffer in silence and they don't say nothing, they keep it to themselves. So I, I feel like this is important that we have to speak up and, and tell you history. Thank you so much. Have an awesome weekend. Hannah, tell us about yourself. Where do you go to school? Um, my name is Hannah Cohn. I go to school at Fairfield Ward High School. I am currently a senior, and I have been a member of STARS throughout all four years of my high school life. What is STARS? It's a peer education program. It's students teaching about responsible sex and sexuality. And that basically means I'm a resource for, a resource for kids in my environment to come to and talk about things that um, are kind of plaguing them in regards to the topic and things we learn about in STARS. Um, yeah. Zeritzi, how about you? Introduce yourself to us and, and tell us where you go to school. Okay. Um, hello, everybody. My name is Zeritzi Villanueva, and I go to AITE in Stamford, Connecticut. And um, I'm a high school senior. I've been in STARS since my sophomore year, right, like, when COVID hit and everything, like, that summer. We found um, about my me and my friends found out about STARS. Um, and I'm basically acting as, like, the main resource at my school for kids to come and talk about, like anything that might be personal that they don't can't trust an adult exactly with but still need resources or somebody just like at their age level that because it's more comfortable. Liana, tell me your name and tell me what you do for a living. Yeah, so my name is Liana Cunningham and I'm the senior director of education and training for Planned Parenthood of Southern New England. Our team is responsible for providing community education and training throughout communities in Connecticut and Rhode Island. So we help fill in that gap by providing sexuality education in schools. We also work in after-school programs. We work with uh, religious organizations. We work in group homes, residential facilities. Again, really any place that asks us to come in and teach sex ed. And Liana, is that the intention? Are we, is, is it 
in addition to training adults, training young people to be that resource? I know that it's students teaching, but are we interested in creating that augmentation, that that additional supplemental resource uh, for the sex ed program? Yeah, so STARS uh, started as a program to help fill in that gap, knowing that a lot of schools weren't teaching comprehensive sexuality education. And, you know, it has expanded. So it started off as just one group in New Haven. We now have six STARS groups across our two states. And yes, that that is still the intention is, again, to fill in that gap and for STARS to be a, a, a resource for folks, whether it's connecting them to our health centers or answering questions that they may have about sex and sexuality. Mercy, this is what's so interesting to me, and I don't know about your high school experience, but when I was in high school, the idea of talking to an adult, even the person who taught sex ed about some of these issues, I just would never do it. You would talk to your friends about it, right? But what's interesting to me about this is is it's like, well, kids are going to talk to their friends anyway. And what if we actually gave the kids training so that they understood a little bit more and could be really helpful and useful? Like, it sounds like the sort of thing that would have been, I don't know, would have been good for me about 35 years ago. <laughs> I, I, You know, I think what's funny is uh, people were talking about sex. I, am I the noob to this? <laughs> I wasn't talking about sex at all. And so, I, you know, I, I think that having having a peer that would have been a resource to go to and ask questions probably would have been great. Um, but, you know, to your point, the folks who were teaching sex ed were not approachable. And the the cool teacher in the school, I'm not going to, you know, broach the conversation of sex if you're the history teacher, right? And so there's there is this, this way that having that resource in a peer to to reach out to and say, hey, I've got this question. But what I'm interested in, uh, Hannah and Zerzi, when when students come up to you, what are they asking about and how do you interact with that? For me, the the biggest part, obviously stars is more than just sex, but I get 98% sex questions. And a lot of them are things I feel like people should know. I, I'm not obviously going to get too in detail of what people are asking due to our HIPAA contract and the fact I appreciate that these people are turning to me and I don't want to disobey their trust. But they're simple things like, am I going to get pregnant if I do this? And should I wear two condoms? Is that better? And it's like, you weren't taught about that in health. I feel like we should know these things. Um, but I guess... To kind of contradict myself, the most surprising thing I've gotten, especially where I live, so I live in Fairfield County, it's a relatively affluent, very white um, part of Connecticut, and I get a lot of pregnant girls, which from joining STARS, I was I was shocked that so many people experience that because it's I live in this bubble, and it's unbelievable that people are experiencing this, and obviously I know how to handle it, and it's not shocking, but it's not talked about at all, and it reaches all of us, these these issues and problems and experiences. So those are two surprising things I think I've encountered. For me, it's kind of the opposite. Like a lot of people don't really talk that much about like sex or like that much. Like I've had people who have come to me for it, but I feel like 
still for in my area like a lot of people find it very taboo to talk about it. it's like ooh, like i don't really know you like should i mention this or should i not like 90% of my conversations involve um, topics such as like consent and relationships and stuff like that and what is toxic, what isn't toxic, you know, and my, I myself have been in a relationship before, therefore I also have more experience on top of the STARS education system, therefore it like a lot of people come to me with like information like, hey, like he, my, my boyfriend's doing this or my girlfriend's kind of doing that and I have, I help them through it, give them like my best advice like educated obviously no not really emotional because it's not my place but there have been instances with like a close friend no not that many detail but there have been a lot of like people who really don't know how to protect themselves from like STIs or like there's a big scare for like um STDs STIs and like it shocks me that a lot of people don't know how they're transmitted or how like they affect people and that's basically what I do at my school like that's what most people come to talk to me John in your sex ed classes did you ever get uh deep into the thick of consent oh god no growing up no I mean this was (laughs) no this was like it was not something that was talked about certainly in sex ed class, it wasn't really talked about amongst our friends. It wasn't talked about amongst family, right? Like there, that was never a conversation. That was a huge gap. And, and, right. and, and so is there a surprise mercy that all these years later, we have gigantic problems in American life with that very question of consent Exactly. When we when we spent decades not talking about it or learning about it from from professionals. Exactly. And it's almost, you know, obvious that when you don't learn about it, you're going to mess up um, at some point of life. What what is so interesting to me about the two of you and the work that you're doing, Liana, is that it puts the conversation of consent inside of the conversations of sex ed. Not everyone believes that teaching people about sex and sexuality, even at the age in which they might be engaged in sexual behavior, um, is a good thing to do, right? Like for some parents, it's never age appropriate because if we talk about sex, then they're going to do sex. And that's a huge problem for everybody. So I, Lena, maybe you could talk about how you address this issue because as you as you deal with public high schools, you're probably dealing with an awful lot of parents who just right off the bat don't want you talking at all to their kids about any of this stuff. Yes, uh, that definitely does happen. And you know, first of all, whenever I'm talking to parents or administrators, we at Planned Parenthood believe that parents and caregivers are the primary sexuality educators of their children or the children in their care. So we are not trying to uh, fill that role in that sense. You know, we believe that it's our job to provide the information, to foster discussion, but we are not there to try to impose our beliefs or our values. That's where we see parents and caregivers, they have that role. Uh, The other thing that we say is, you know, we know from the data about half of high school students are sexually active. And it's also about providing the tools for 
if and when a student does decide to become sexually active. We know from numerous studies that teaching about sex does not make someone more likely to engage in sexual behavior. Uh, if anything, it helps, it makes sure that if and when they do, that they use protection. Uh, we know that sex ed actually reduces unintended pregnancy and rates of STIs. So that is the information that you know I would share with parents, or that I do share with parents or or administrators who are you know skeptical about sex ed and about us coming in and, and talking to their child. But but like, do you ever run into that, Hannah, where where someone is concerned that that you, a, a student, are talking to other people about this very important intimate issue? Um, I've never had a parent come up to me. Uh, I think I, I operate kind of on the down low. The people that come to me don't talk to anyone that they've come to me. However, Fairfield, I do love my town. I do, I do want to emphasize that, but it is a relatively conservative town. And at the moment, uh, they're trying to ban a book called Let's Talk About It, Teen's Guide to Sex, Relationships and Being a Human. Um, they're trying to ban it from our school's libraries because they don't want that influence of um, sexual health in, in Fairfield, which is so disappointing, especially what Leanna just said, how it, learning about sex is more helpful than not. So I see more of a pushback in, in the systemic part of Fairfield, less than people coming up to me. I like the idea of you being the neighborhood hope dealer, just kind of with a trench coat down to the floor with sex ed pamphlets. Condoms in the other pocket. I, I, I'm wondering, do you, since you do it on the down low, do students sort of pull you aside as though it is a, hey, hey, Hannah, I've got a question. And is is it kind of a, a conspicuous transaction? A hundred percent. I get more messages on social media than I do in person. I've gotten a few in person and it's more like, can I talk to you privately? And almost every single time someone's texted me, they'll be like, can I tell you a secret? Like, can you not share this with anyone? Like, please don't tell anyone I'm asking you this. That's what I get. I almost never get group conversations. It's always very serious when people come up to me. Mm-hmm. Zeritsi, do you feel like you have some of the same pushback within your school system that people, by and large, don't want to have sex education taught or have have books that they can actually check out of the library? There was a controversy in my town, I believe, in elementary schools or middle schools. I can't remember what it was, like the book title exactly, but I know it was a book about like educating young kids about transgender folks and like, um, you know, not assuming people's like gender off the bat, like and just, you know, learning to ask people like, hey, like what pronouns you go by and parents were pushing to ban that because they thought it was dumb they were like no like my kid shouldn't be learning about this at this age and blah 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 personally for me as well um no parent has ever come directly to me because I also tend to keep things like pretty private like respecting everyone's privacy because I know some parents definitely do not like believe their kids should have a lot of education in sex or like they're like some things are some topics are too private that kids are even scared of letting their parents know so I tend to keep things really on as well on like the down low 
for me, what I see mostly, it comes from students themselves. Like they, they feel like there's like a barrier. Like they, they feel weird talking to me about it. They're like, is this really like okay to talk about? Like I'm a little uncomfortable. I'm like, no, you shouldn't feel uncomfortable. Like this is completely normal stuff. Like we're bound to start talking about this or bound to start feeling like emotions to kind of do like be sexually active or be in a relationship in general. Like there's no shame in talking to me about it because I'm I just reassure a lot of like the kids that come to me that they don't have to worry about being judged. So how did both of you get involved in this? Uh, That's a question that comes up for me. I think, you know, if you are in towns that are conservative with, you know, uh, campaigns to ban certain books, how, how did either of you come to this and want to be, you know, the sex education ambassadors for your for your peers? For me personally, like it, what I remember specifically, me, my, and my two friends were at a Starbucks when my friend received a text message from one of her older, like at the time I think was a junior friend. And she was like, hey, like, um, I know I'm part of this program called STARS and like, here's a link to their website. If you want to reach out to anybody else, you know, like this would be like such a great opportunity. We're looking for new members. So all three of us kind of look at the link through her phone and I'm like, this is such a good idea because throughout middle school, they really like put restrictions on what they were saying like they made it sound wrong to talk about certain topics or like even puberty or just like growing up in general so it was super weird all three of us kind of signed up and we prayed for the best and I got in and honestly during the program I really just learned a lot about who I am because I realized hey I really like social justice and talking about things that are supposedly not the norm we shouldn't be talking publicly about it so the more i participated the more i grew to really like love and embrace the program i had a slightly different approach in seventh grade i volunteered at planned parenthood just because it was an organization that my mother knew and i would get automated text messages as in like oh we have this event and I responded to one of them not knowing that it was an actual person and when they did respond I'm the type of person who I love getting involved I do 3,000 things outside of school and it really matters to me to do things so when they responded my first question was hey is there anything I can do as, as a high schooler they sent me the program I signed up and I got in. So that actually gives me an, uh, a, a line of sight into how your parents felt about being involved in this program. But Zierzi, what about you? Uh, this is something that you and your friends came to organically. And how did your parents sort of feel about your involvement with Planned Parenthood, with STARS being, you know, I've been calling, I've been saying a bit of a sex education ambassador. What, what did your parents feel about that? Okay, this is a little story. So I grew up in a very Catholic household, like back when my parents were still together, it was very Catholic. They sent me to Catholic school and there they taught me, you know, pro-life, like pro-choice is abortion is wrong. Don't ever do it. Never advocate it. And so that's the ideology I grew up with. But slowly, like as I started growing up, I started kind of thinking for myself and not really accepting everything that the church teaches me because I just like was completely follower and I never explored 
covered any topics. And so when I started doing that, I realized, hey, my opinions completely shifted. Like, I don't know why I thought that I'm like more of this. And for my mom, she like, though she is a religious woman, she's very accepting and willing to hear me out like with change. So when I mentioned this program to her and how much I loved it and how there's a lot of advocacy, she was like, you know what, if this is what you love, like I'm here to support you. Like if this is a change and you want to talk to me about stuff, like this is 100% a good opportunity, go for it and I'm here for you. Actually, for one of my friends that originally had joined, her parents found out about the program and they're also religious and they're very unsupportive of talking about sex or being like a peer educator. Therefore, she had to unfortunately quit the program because of her parents. And I'm just glad that that wasn't me and I still have the opportunity to help kids. I I just have to say, we're doing this um, interview remotely uh, and so we're not all sitting in the same room together. But we do have the video on and I can't help but notice, Liana, that you seem enormously proud of these young women as they talk. Incredibly proud. Incredibly proud. (laughs) The look on your face is just like, yes. I mean, talk talk about how how it makes you feel to have people who, who really dive in and do this work. Yeah, I mean, it it does make me proud. I will say I actually started off uh, with this organization as a STARS career educator myself. So I joined the STARS program when I was 16. Um, As you know, my high school had a, and I think still does, have a a daycare center for students' children, which I thought, okay, that's great. You know, we're providing a support for teen parents. And we weren't doing anything to provide uh, students with, the education that they deserve. Uh, so I was, you know, I tried to like do some stuff on my own of educating my peers. And then uh, a family friend who works at Planned Parenthood told me about the STARS program. And so I joined when I was a junior and it was eye-opening for me, you know, for me personally. And it was just like, I love to do this. I love talking about sex ed. I love teaching sex ed. I want to be an educator for Planned Parenthood when I grow up. Uh, so it's just great to see uh, people who are, are just like me or were just like me um, and are loving the program that I, you know, now help support. And when you when you when you hear them talk about their process and it feels like the, you see those parallels for you, are there are there concerns in addition to your the pride that you have for them? Are there concerns for, for the way that they're going through the program and the things that they might have to face and encounter? Yeah, I mean, I think my biggest concern is just that not much has changed since I was a teenager in terms of uh, school-based sex ed. So Connecticut still does not have a mandate for sex education. There are sexual health education standards, but it's really up to, you know, an individual school or a school district you know, what is taught in the classroom and how it's taught. There's no oversight of what's happening in classrooms. In some ways, we're seeing a backlash right now against sex education. You know, what Hannah mentioned, I think, is happening, you know, across the country. We're seeing that, you know, sex educators are being called groomers and and pedophiles, and uh, it's very transphobic. Uh, what's being said. And so I think that's what I find more concerning is that after, you know, like 20 years, we haven't made a whole lot of progress. 
So we're going to wrap up with a couple questions for uh, the two students here. Um, it, for major takeaways, if there was anything that you needed your peers to know about their own sexual health and identity, what, what would be the major takeaway? What would be the major lesson um, that you would bestow upon them? For me personally, the major lesson that I would probably want people at my school to know is that, you know, like, I would mostly mean like on consent and like, you know, that it's okay. Like, it's not weird if you ask somebody, can I give you a hug? Can I do this? Can I, you know, because usually when we go and borrow things from people like a pen or a pencil, you would say, hey, can I borrow your pencil? I'll return it later. And I feel like um, if you kind of just implement that mindset to people that that should be carried on to relationships asking people like hey is it okay if I'm touching you right now like here because some people don't like touch like I have a friend very anxious I love her to death but very anxious when people come near her and close to her and touch her and it's very important to ask for consent and I see a lot of people at my school or like this could be anywhere that don't ask for consent or really don't have any knowledge on what it means to really ask they kind of just do and there's like no filter and some of the stuff is can be like borderline harassment and that's happened to me in the past there's been a student like in my freshman year who was going around harassing and like assaulting some of these girls and like it had to be brought to the principal and the police like the authorities attention and i feel that education specifically with consent can lead to, to prevention of a lot of things because in for me personally instead of educating women or like people who have female body parts how to protect themselves from like being harassed being assaulted etc and men too since men can also be assaulted we should be teaching people in general how to simply ask and to not do it i agree with that and to kind of piggyback off of it in that idea of conversation I just think it's so important to talk about things. And the more we talk, the more we get comfortable with these subjects, the better of a chance we have of making change and making a real impact in our community. And um, opening that conversation is just something I personally really value and think that these high schools and these elementary schools and all of um, all of the schools <laughs> need to start putting into consideration when approaching sex ed and and peers too. I I appreciate those who come to me and and trust me as an ally. And I think they should be doing it more with parents, friends, communities. You know, I can't tell you enough how much I am grateful for the work that you do, how much, how appreciative I am for the work that you're doing, Liana, um, in uh, schools and with students and to both of you, Zierzi and Hannah. I mean, the courage and the stamina it must take to kind of, um, you know, be a star in your own school and a peer educator that must be um, wildly rewarding, but also really taxing. And so just thank you all for coming on the show today. And thank you for everything that you do. Yes, of course. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. You can go to ctmirror.org forward slash untold for bonus content and photos from this episode. Look us up on social, drop us an email, and don't forget to send us your untold stories and tell us what's going on in your community. And if you liked what you heard, leave us a review and share this episode with a friend who'd love it too. Our reporter for this episode was Harriet Jones. We have digital support from Kyle Constable. Graphic design for Untold is by Jordana Hertz. 
Our music is composed by Mark Lyon. Untold is produced and edited by Harriet Jones. Thanks to the Connecticut Mirror's executive editor, Beth Hamilton, and publisher, Bruce Putterman.